Therefore, as God's chosen ones, holy and dearly loved, put on compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving one another if anyone has a grievance against another. Just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you are also to forgive. Above all, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Let's pray together. Lord God, these words, like all of your word, is sweeter than the honeycomb. We thank you for letters like Colossians that we have from our brother, your servant, Paul, that encourage us, that give us these commands and exhortations that explain how we are to now live in these new clothes of righteousness. Lord God, we thank you for the work Jesus did, bringing us over from the other side of the battle that we were losing and bringing us into a kingdom, kingdom that will never end, where we will be with you forever, worshiping Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Lord God, we pray that you would go before us now, preparing our hearts and our minds for this time in your word. May this be a sacred hour. We lift up all these things to you in the name of your Son, Jesus, and for his glory. Amen. Dress appropriately. Have you ever received that instruction? Maybe you were invited to a ball or a gala of some kind that required a certain sort of formal attire in order to participate. Maybe you needed to put on your best suit or your finest gown. It would be inappropriate to show up in your old work clothes, stained with sweat, paint, and dirt. Right? The doorman would take one look at you and say, ah, you can't come in there looking like that. And your friend who invited you would call you up afterward and say, Hey, where were you? I was looking for you. I wanted to introduce you to people. How come you didn't show up? And then you'd have to tell them the story of how you showed up in rags, unfit for the occasion. How much pity do you think your friend would have on you? Well, none at all, right? He gave you the instructions. He, he laid it out, everything you needed to be well-dressed for the occasion. And you ignored his instructions. Well, you might consider Paul's instructions here in Colossians 3, 12 through 14 as a detailed invitation to dress appropriately. Twice he issues this command, put on. Right, he's continuing this idea of getting dressed in the right clothes. He's just encouraged us to take off all that he mentions in verse 8. He says, take off those clothes, those clothes of anger, wrath, malice, slander, and filthy talk, Take those off. You no longer have any reason to use them. Put them away. Burn them. You're never going to bring them out again. They're no longer the right thing for you to wear. Christ died for every single one of those sins that we struggle with, and now they no longer fit us. They're no longer appropriate. Right? He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. These dirty clothes don't belong to us anymore now that we are in Christ. And so Paul is saying, now, Christian, here is the appropriate way to live. Putting on the new self. This is how you are to live. These are the proper clothes for the new creation. This is who you are in Christ. You are children of the King. Now, dress the part. 
So Paul lays these new clothes out on the bed, as he does every morning, and he says, put these on. Wear them. Clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Well, that's really the big idea of this passage. Christ is your new life. So put on your new clothes and follow him. That's the main point of Paul's teaching here. In Colossians 3, in the whole chapter, Paul has been explaining the practical implications of the believer's union with Jesus Christ. In verses 5 through 11, he, he began to speak of the negative implications. Right? He speaks of the sin we must put off and put away and put to death. And we must do so in light of the future judgment as well as our past life in that sin. But you see, Scripture doesn't just emphasize killing sin. You also need to be headed in the right direction. This is a problem with many support groups, right? They focus almost entirely on putting off sin. But Scripture emphasizes what you are putting on in its place. Right? We don't just break habits. We repent and believe and we replace habits. What is a liar? No longer a liar. When he tells the truth 100% of the time. When is a thief? No longer a thief. When he not only stops stealing, but starts giving generously. You see, we need to be pursuing what's right, not just trying to stop sinning. We need to turn from sin in repentance and turn to Christ in faith and obedience. And so that's where Paul turns his attention now in verse 12. But already in verse 9, right, he began to speak of those positive implications of the believer's union with Christ. We saw, first of all, the position of the new man. You have put off the old self and have put on the new self. This is who you are in Christ. Then we saw the progress of the new man. You are being renewed in knowledge. God is progressively making you what you are positionally. Then we saw the pattern of the new man. We're being conformed to the image of our creator, patterned after his perfection. Then we saw the partnership of the new man. We're one with every kind of believer. Right? Whatever we are, Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, we are one in Jesus Christ. And then we saw the preeminent ruler of the new man. Christ is all in all. He is our supreme and all-sufficient Savior. And so this morning, we're going to look, continue to look at those positive implications of our union with Christ, what we must put on. As those who have received gospel grace, we are to clothe ourselves with these gospel graces. And so we're going to consider now, under three more headings, this new man. Right? The people of the new man, in the beginning of verse 12, the practice of the new man, in verses 12 and 13, and the perfection of the new man, in verse 14. And then next week, Lord willing, we'll finish by looking at the priorities of the new man, in verses 15 through 17. So first, the people of the new man, the new self. Look at verse 12. Therefore, as God's chosen ones, holy and dearly loved, put on compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Notice those three glorious descriptions of God's people, believers in Jesus Christ, that Paul uses to help you receive his exhortation. He's about to tell us what kind of heart, what kind of attitude we should have, putting them on like a garment, clothing ourselves in them. First, He calls us chosen, holy, and dearly loved. Do you see Paul's logic? 
Here's the life I want you to live, he says. But I want to remind you, as I exhort you to live this way, of God's stance toward you. He goes back to the electing love of God, and he says, God has set his heart on you. He has chosen you, and because he has chosen you, he's called you to holiness. And he has evidenced his love for you by his choosing of you. In other words, the fountain from which this new life of obedience springs is the gospel of God's free, sovereign, redeeming grace. Paul wants us to treasure and then take this vertical grace and then bend it out horizontally toward one another. These glorious, rich truths are the wellspring of life. They're descriptions of gospel grace, of the love of God lavished on us. And the more you understand them, the more they will warm your heart and enable you to live in the obedience that characterizes the new life. So let's think about each of them. Paul starts by saying, we are God's chosen ones. This is the doctrine of election. It's the doctrine that God, in eternity past, chose his people whom he would save in history. And it just has a tremendous leveling effect on the human race. The more you study it, the more you realize just how level we are in election. We're just as level in God's election as we are at the foot of the cross. Because you learn very plainly that God's choice is ultimate and decisive, not your choice. You're not a Christian simply by your own choice. You're not a Christian simply by your own decision. You're a Christian because you're the elect of God, chosen by God before the foundation of the world, according to Ephesians chapter 1. Paul writes there, Blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavens in Christ. For he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in love before him. And according to two passages in the book of Revelation, your name was written in the Lamb's book of life before you were ever born. In fact, before anybody was ever born, before creation itself was consummated, before God put down the foundation of the earth, he had written our names in his book. And then Romans chapter 9 teaches us that God's election is not based on merits or works. Speaking of Rebekah's twin boys, Jacob and Esau, identical DNA, Paul writes, For though her sons had not been born yet, or done anything good or bad, So that God's purpose according to election might stand, not from works, but from the one who calls. She was told the older will serve the younger. And just as Paul says later in Romans 9, I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. That's God's sovereignty. He chooses. And that has a tremendous leveling effect. How can you boast in the face of that? There is nothing good in me that influenced God to choose me. We are chosen, rather, in opposition to what we deserve, not because of our merits. And so the doctrine of election is not that God looked down the long tunnel of history, saw that you would freely choose him, and then lined up his purpose and design in conformity to what you would do. The doctrine of election is far more wonderful. God saw what you would do, was only rebellion, only to reject him. He saw you would never come to him. He saw that you were dead in your trespasses and sins. 
helpless, totally unable to come, a hateful rebel against the rule of God. And then he said, I will love this one and make her mine, and this one, and this one. Despite their unloveliness, despite their sin and rebellion, I will choose them. In his sovereign purpose, before he hung the stars, he thought of you, weak and wretched in your sin, and purpose to choose and rescue and redeem you and make you his own by his son, Jesus Christ. Before you had done anything, before he foresaw anything, he purposed to be your rescuer and your redeemer. So can you be proud in the wake of such a truth? What can you take to your own credit now, knowing that you are and have and you owe, everything you are and have, you owe to his sovereign electing love and grace? Where is boasting before the electing love of God? You know, sometimes the doctrine of predestination has been used by some as a badge of our inherent superiority. But the doctrine of the sovereign electing love of God puts us in the dust and leaves no room at all for pride. So as Paul calls us to humility and gentleness, to take on the servant's posture, he points us to the electing counsels of a sovereign God. And he says, He loved you with an everlasting love. He purposed to make you unlovely in your sin, though you are his beloved child. You owe it all to him. You are debtor to mercy alone. Let boasting die and take the servant's stance. If you don't live such a life, you are in violation, not just of your own new position, but in violation of the eternal plan of God set in motion before the world began. So it's very critical that we understand this truth of God's choice. And then flowing out of that, he says, we are holy. We are set apart from the world, purified from evil. When God chose you, he chose to draw you out of the mainstream and sinful uh, mass of humankind. He elected to bring you to himself. He chose to separate you that you might be different and devoted to him to come out of the world and not be common or unclean anymore. Right? That's why Paul began his letter, to the saints in Christ at Colossae. You are, you're called saints. You're called holy ones. You're called separate ones. You're different than the world. And if you don't live different, again, then you're in violation of the entire intention from, of God from before the world began. And so when Paul says holy, he doesn't mean that we are already intrinsically holy. Right? Otherwise, his exhortation to holiness would be redundant. No, in eternity, God set you apart for himself. He consecrated you designated you as his and now you need to be who he has purposed you to be and what you are positionally right this is first a position and a destiny before it is ever a pattern of behavior ephesians 2 verse 10 says we are his workmanship created in christ jesus for good works which god prepared ahead of time for us to do we're saved to walk in new life in christ so we're god's chosen ones we're holy. And then I love, th I love this. Dearly loved. There's something intimate here. There's something very personal here. We're not just meant to fill out the plan for the Almighty God. But there's a love relationship here that is to prompt us and to drive us. We are the objects of divine affection. Now, I don't understand that. And I don't understand why God so dearly loves me. 
but I'm not going to fight it. I'm going to receive it and cherish it by his grace. We are written on the palms of his hand, all of us, every Christian. God says in Jeremiah 31, verse 3, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued to extend faithful love to you. When God chose you, it was not some cold, some arbitrary thing. No, he fixed his love on you forever. He predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ for himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace that he lavished on us in the beloved one. Now I want you to notice something that I think is important. These three terms, chosen, holy, and loved. Do you know where those three terms are used elsewhere in the scriptures? They're used in the Old Testament to describe Israel. So you don't, do you know what Paul is saying then? An incredible change has taken place in God's economy. What once was true of one nation is now true of all nations, all peoples who come to Christ. Christ's church, those who have come to Christ in faith, we are God's chosen people. We are his holy people. We are his dearly loved people. That's amazing. Paul is saying to this little ragtag group of Christians in Colossae and to us today, you are the chosen people of God. God has chosen you. He has elected you for holiness of life, for service of his church. And his choice of you is proof of his love for you. And because of who you are, therefore, I want you to put off the old life. And I want you to put on the new life. I want you to put off the old self, lay it aside. And I want you to put on the new self. Dress yourself, clothe yourself, bathe yourself in the reality of what it is to be the new creation. And put on a lifestyle that is consistent with such a high calling. Well, what kind of a lifestyle is this? Let's look, secondly, at the practice of the new man. Look with me at verses 12 through 13. Therefore, as God's chosen ones, holy and dearly loved, put on compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving one another if anyone has a grievance against another. Just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you are also to forgive. That verb there, put on, means to put your clothes on. Or it means to envelop in. It's the idea of just covering, covering you up. Just cover your life with these graces. And he speaks of five gracious attitudes specifically. Right? In verse 8, he said to put off five sins. And now in verse 12, he says to put on five graces in their place. Put on compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. These aren't five separate things. <laughs> These graces flow in and out of one another. They're connected. They're like interlocking circles. If you have one grace in you, the others naturally flow as well. So let's look at them each briefly. Compassion. Paul says, dress yourself, clothe yourself, put on compassion. Now, the original Greek here says something like compassionate bowels or intestines because culturally in that day that is where the emotions lived you know like with all that i am i feel this you know with the oomph paul's calling us to feel compassion and concern for others to enter their lives not just to keep things superficial he says i want you to have a gut feeling of compassion right, you generally care what's going on in the life of someone else you care as though it were happening to you Right? It's the very opposite of indifference. 
right? It's an aching kind of concern. It's the heart of the Good Samaritan, right? The priest and the Levite passed by the man who had been robbed and beaten and left for dead on the road. But the, when the Samaritan saw the man, he had compassion. He went over to him, bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and said, and, and took him, put him on his animal, brought him to an inn, took care of him, right? What a great example of compassion. This compassion and yearning with deep affection is so frequently evident in the life of Christ himself. He comes across the sea, right? He's tired. He's seeking a place to retreat, withdraw, and commune with his God and Father and pray. And then he's met on the other side of the sea by a great crowd. His disciples want him to turn them away, but we're told he felt a compassion for them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And so he denies himself. And he feeds the 5,000. So the compassion of the Lord Jesus is our model. Jesus was so moved with compassion for people. He wept, didn't he? Jesus loved people. He had deep, painful feelings about the multitudes, about Jerusalem, about the poor, about the blind, the crippled, the deaf, the orphaned, the widows. And so we're commanded, take care of orphans and widows in their distress. Take care of your parents when they get old. This is compassion, a deep down pain when you see somebody hurting. We ought to be the greatest helpers of the needy and suffering in the world. And that means we need, ought to be concerned about and care about the greatest need and the greatest suffering that people face. We ought to be faithful evangelists. This was Jesus' own example. Jesus continued going around to all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every sickness. When he saw the crowds, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dejected like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is abundant, but the workers are few. Therefore pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. If we know that God is holy and just, and that sinners justly deserve condemnation and eternal punishment in hell, and that Jesus, the Son of God, left heaven's glory, and entered our plight, was despised and rejected by men, was crucified and bore the wrath of God in our place, and rose from the dead on the third day, and ascended into heaven as Lord of all, and sat down at the right hand of the Father, and is the only Savior and Lord, and that conscious faith in Him is necessary to be saved and have eternal life, and that faith comes by hearing the gospel preached, and having heard and believed the word for ourselves, and received God's mercy and grace, can we be so heartless so as to withhold the gospel from others who need it? Keeping it only for ourselves. How can we lack compassion for sinners in light of Christ's compassion for us? Well, notice that kindness is connected to this. It flows out of it. Kindness, referring to that goodness of heart, surely connected with that yearning of affection, that compassion. He says, you put on kindness as well. If you're a Christian, living the new life, one thing that ought to mark you is kindness. Somebody said this, Kindness is the virtue of a man whose neighbor's good is as dear to him as his own. That's a kind person. Right? You find ways to use your time, your treasures, your talents to bless someone else, and you do it with a sweet disposition, a kindness. Jesus had about him a kind of sweet goodness. And he offered that to men. Titus 3, verse 3. For we too were once foolish, disobedient, deceived, 
enslaved by various passions and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful, detesting one another, the complete opposite of being kind and compassionate. But when the kindness of God, our Savior, and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us. Paul says, you know what changed my life? It was the kindness of Jesus Christ. Well, humility is the third gracious attitude. While the world takes a whole month to celebrate pride, the Bible celebrates humility. It's that spirit of lowliness which is based on a proper self-understanding. Paul says in Philippians 2, 3-4, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look out not to his own interests, but rather to the interests of others. You actually think of someone else as more important than you. I mean, you generally think of them this way. You're not just playing a game. You actually think they're more important. Their needs are more important than your own. Again, Jesus is our greatest example. He said, take up my yoke and learn from me, because I am lowly and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Paul writes of him in Philippians 2, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. The theologians referred to Christ's act of leaving heaven's glory and becoming incarnate for us and for our salvation as his humiliation. Here's how the Baptist Catechism says it. Christ's humiliation consisted in his being born, and that in a low condition, made under the law, undergoing the miseries of this life, the wrath of God and the cursed death of the cross, and in being buried and continuing under the power of death for a time. The whole scope of his work from his birth to his burial was a continued and climactic example of humility, never to be surpassed. Brothers and sisters, we are not that humble. And yet Paul says, adopt the same attitude as that of Jesus Christ. And so gentleness is the next grace we are to put on. Gentleness is not synonymous with weakness or lack of courage and strength, a gentleness which seeks to avoid conflict at all costs. Nor is gentleness false modesty or self-deprecation. Biblically speaking, gentleness or meekness in some translations has the idea of great power being exercised with great restraint and great care. And Jesus, again, is the epitome of true gentleness. Isaiah's prophecy about Jesus included this tender, gentle description. He will not cry out or shout or make his voice heard in the streets. He will not break a bruised reed. And he will not put out a smoldering wick. He will faithfully bring justice. Peter reminds us that we see the gentleness of Christ, again, preeminently in the cross. 1 Peter 2, 23, When he was insulted, he did not insult in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. Biblical gentleness assumes great strength. But this strength is never used harshly, violently, or aggressively. Instead, it's used to protect the weak, to serve the most helpless. And doesn't God treat us with such gentleness in Christ, gently restoring us every time we repent of sin and seek his forgiveness? In Galatians 6, verse 1, exhorts us, Brothers and sisters, if someone is overtaken in any wrongdoing, you who are spiritual, restore such a person with a gentle spirit watching out for yourselves so that you also won't be tempted. 
right? before you get too haughty, just remember that you could be suffering from the same problem. You could be tempted in the same way. So you better consider yourself and make sure you've built your walls up and then extend Christ's grace to your fellow brother or sister. Likewise, 2 Timothy 2, verse 25, Paul says to Timothy, The Lord's servant must not quarrel, but must be gentle to everyone, able to teach and patient, instructing his opponents with gentleness. Perhaps God will grant them repentance, leading them to the knowledge of the truth. He says, put on gentleness. God may use it, along with the gospel, to grant salvation. Well, then there's patience or long-suffering. Patience always has this meaning of of steadfastness or long-suffering built into it. And this often takes place in the face of persecution or attack. It's the opposite of revenge. It's the opposite of resentment. Right? As God is patient with us, so we should be patient in our circumstances. Did you know patience is an attribute of God? Exodus 34, 6-7, The Lord is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love, maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity, rebellion, and sin. Thank God that he relented from pouring out his wrath on us before we could repent. He gave us time. He was patient towards us. And that should motivate thankfulness that there's time for others to repent. Paul's rhetorical question in Romans 2, verse 4, gets to this point. Or do you despise the riches of his kindness, restraint, and patience, not recognizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? Or Peter writes in 2 Peter 3, verse 9, The Lord does not delay his promise, as some understand delay, but is patient with you not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. Again, patience marked the life of the Lord Jesus. Paul says in 1 Timothy 1, 15-16, This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and I am the worst of them. But I received mercy for this reason, so that in me, the worst of them, Christ Jesus might demonstrate his extraordinary patience as an example to those who would believe in him for eternal life. Paul says, if you don't think Jesus is patient, let me give you my testimony. I ran around killing Christians, and Christ loved me. He was patient with me. Now, you ask yourself about these five graces. These are simple thoughts. Have you put on your new clothes? Is your life marked by a very tender sense of compassion to people in need? Is your life marked by kindness so that somebody else's good is just as important to you as yours? Is your life marked by humility, a true posture preferring others? Is your life marked by gentleness that says, I'd rather suffer than have you suffer? Is your life marked by patience? Does your timeline for others' growth in godliness have the same length as God's. I think it ought to, don't you? Because after all, you are a new creature, and you are to put on the clothes of the new man. God shows us every one of these graces in ways that we can't even fathom every single day. Part of the Christian life is just becoming more and more aware of these attributes of God and being blown away by them. And we see our sin, and we say, how? How do you keep doing all of this towards me when I keep sinning towards you? This is amazing grace. So as we examine our hearts, we see his compassion toward us. 
his kindness to us, his gentle correcting of us, his patience to change us. And as we trust in him, we come confessing that of ourselves, that we don't have these graces, and, so, and yet that he can use us in one another's lives for his glory. So those are the gracious attitudes. But then Paul moves on to the gracious actions, these two participles in verse 13. He shows us the way in which we put on these things. Now, bearing with one another and forgiving one another if anyone has a grievance against another. I love that he uses these two examples because they require two people engaging each other. Right? These graces, the graces we are to put on, all presuppose the church. Right? Here's what you need. Here's who you need to live out the Christian life in Christ's church. Right? These are all about one anothering. Do you see that phrase? It's Paul urges us to live out our faith toward one another. He knows our hearts are just as sinful as his own. And so Paul exhorts us to forbear and to forgive. And brothers and sisters, we need to get a handle on these two gracious actions. Right? Paul doesn't see this local congregation of Christians as sort of an outpost of heaven on earth where everyone is perfect. He knows that the only way we will ever get along with one another is if we are forbearing and forgiving. And these two principles must be in place because there are so many sins and so many weaknesses in each of us. So let's look at each one briefly. What is forbearance? The word means endure, right? Enduring each other. Jesus uses it in Luke 9, 41. You unbelieving and perverse generation, how long will I be with you and put up with you? Paul uses it again, 1 Corinthians 4, verse 12. When we are persecuted, we endure it. Right? That's the meaning here. Become long-suffering persons and endure each other. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And so all things means it may be an amoral issue. Right? It's not a sin. But you go to the men's retreat and your bunkmate snores like you've never heard before. It's terrible, right? It's not a moral issue. Put on love and put up with it and get some noise-canceling headphones. Or maybe there's a physical problem, right? Maybe he stutters. Maybe she has a laugh that stops a party. You know, one of those shrieking, weird kind of gulping laughs. There's nothing that can be done about it. Right? Maybe it's a weakness of some sort, either doctrinal or practical. Romans 15, verse 1. Now we who are strong have an obligation to bear the weaknesses of those without strength, and not to please ourselves. It's not a moral issue, so bear with it, put up with it. But it could also involve a moral issue or sin. God forbears, Romans 3, verse 25. God presented Christ as the mercy seat by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness, because in his restraint, in his forbearance, God passed over the sins he previously committed. How did God endure thousands of years of his people sinning against him and also passing over and forgiving the sins of those people? He passed over his sins because he planned to send his son to pay the penalty for their sin in the fullness of time. And even now, he doesn't speak a word of rebuke and correction and condemnation every time we sin. I mean, ever wonder how the four Gospels would sound if Jesus had spoken a word of correction every time his disciples sinned? You know, John, stop that. Peter, that's wrong. Matthew, you're absolutely out of line. 
Now the whole account would be filled with the Lord's rebukes. But the Lord forbore with his disciples. He showed forbearance. And Paul says, we are to show forbearance to one another. Now this doesn't mean, oh, do I ever endure him. Right? It isn't the kind of thing we're talking about. It means to bear with or to hold out, whether it's persecution or injury or threats or difference or insults or complaints or lies or defamation of your character or whatever it is. You hold yourself back when you're tempted to break loose and fly at each other. It's a beautiful grace to be able to endure, to be able to back away with a sense of enduring under any kind of hardship and say, the Lord has a reason. The Lord has a purpose. It's up to me to manifest the godly quality of endurance in this situation. And then concerning those moral issues, all right, they've spoken harshly to you. They've broken some law of love. They've violated some Christian commandment. And what do you do after you forbear? You need to forgive. Now many people do not understand what a serious matter it is to be unwilling to forgive those who ask for forgiveness. If someone is unwilling or unable to forgive, they should meditate on Jesus' parable of the wicked servant. Matthew 18, 21-35. This is where Jesus takes your arm, twists it behind your back, and says, Don't come and tell me about the hundred denarii. I'll talk to you about the ten thousand talents. Like a zillion lifetimes worth of debt. You owed me everything, and I forgave it all. And I did it freely and richly. But you know, another, and probably the most common misconception of forgiveness in our day is that of therapeutic forgiveness. This insists that forgiveness is at its core a feeling. Right? Our culture has picked up on this in a big way. When people say they forgive, they mean that it is a private matter in which he or she is not going to feel bitter. And some even say, on this line of thinking, that it's legitimate to, feel God, to forgive God. But this is a heretical idea, because God has never done anything which requires forgiveness. And yet, therapeutic forgiveness says they need to forgive God, so bitterness is not part of their life. It also diminishes the necessity of two parties working out their differences, right? If forgiveness is simply how I feel, there's no need to worry about the relationship. So the tragedy of therapeutic forgiveness is that in making individual feelings the center of everything, it ultimately does lead to bitterness and wrong feelings. So what does it mean to forgive? There are at least two words for forgive in the New Testament. And this one used here means freely or graciously give. The idea is that when we forgive, we don't exact a payment. We treat people better than they deserve. Right? In this sense, you forgive when someone has wronged you, and therefore they are in debt to you, and sheer justice says you have the right to exact some suffering from them in payment for the suffering that they caused you. And you not only don't demand the payment, but you freely give good for evil. And this is the meaning of this word, forgive, and that's how Jesus taught us to pray. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. I like this definition from Chris Bronze. He says, Forgiveness is a commitment by the offended to pardon graciously the repentant for moral liability and to be reconciled to that person, although not all consequences are necessarily eliminated. In other words, forgiveness is not therapeutically driven, but theologically driven. When we forgive one another, we promise three things. Right? I will not remind you of this sin. Right? We won't go historical on them. The exception, of course, is when we see a pattern, we bring it up, not to hurt them, but to help them in the repentance process. 
But fundamentally, right, I will remember your sins no more. I'm not going to bring it up. I will not mention it to anyone else. Right? The whole small group, the whole church isn't going to know. Again, the exception is when it's a crime, because it's not just a sin against you, it's a sin against the state. Another case may be when someone struggles with a sin that is potentially threatening to others. But without, without those exceptions, right, you promise, I will not mention it to anyone else. It ends here. And then I will not allow my mind to dwell on it. The reality is that many forgiveness wounds will never completely heal this side of eternity. And yet while we may carry those wounds with us the rest of our lives, we don't carry resentment or bitterness in our hearts. We release the person from debt. So it's not merely an attitude, but it's an action, right? It's a promise of pardon done both properly and with the right heart motivation. Jesus said, every one of you must forgive his brother or sister from your heart. Attitude and action. And then it's not unconditional, but conditional. Paul says we are to forgive others as God forgives us. The Bible clearly teaches that God does not forgive everyone. Forgiveness is conditional. God's forgiveness is not unconditional. If it was, everyone would be saved. When Jesus prayed on the cross, Father, forgive them, he wasn't granting pardon, he was praying. Jesus said a prayer request, not a pronouncement. And that prayer was answered in Acts chapter 2 when those who crucified him were cut to the heart. Peter's preaching and said, what must we do to be saved? And Peter said they must repent and receive God's grace through faith in order to be forgiven. Now, two conditions must be met. We must repent and believe the gospel. We must turn from our sin and turn to Christ, trusting in him alone for the forgiveness of our sins. Now, we are always required to have this attitude of forgiveness, right? Those five graces. And just as the Lord prayed on the cross that his murderers would be forgiven, so we should pray for those who persecute us and sin against us. But the act of forgiveness doesn't happen until the offending party is repentant. It's conditional. But what if the offender does confess their sin and repent and seek forgiveness? The biblical mandate is clear. We must forgive them. A person who calls himself a believer and is unwilling to forgive is an oxymoron. Forgiven sinners forgive sin. And friends, forgiveness is a daily doctrine, isn't it? It's something we will need to give and receive daily because we are sinners surrounded by sinners. What's the motive of forgiveness? What's the evidence of a repentant heart resting on the grace of God, receiving forgiveness as a gift? The evidence of such a heart is the horror at the thought of any relationship of theirs in which there is unforgiveness. At being reconciled to God through Jesus Christ our Lord, we long to be reconciled to one another. I think about what has been done for you. The wrath and curse I deserve was laid on Christ, and his righteous record accounted to me as though I had obeyed who has not obeyed. I am a transgressor and guilty, and yet I'm counted righteous in the sight of God and at the bar of heavenly justice, so that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And I have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, who is the propitiation for my sins. And I've been cleansed in conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Satan's accusations cannot stick against me any longer. My record of sin and wickedness has been expunged forever. I'm forgiven and counted righteous in Christ. And that's true of you, if you're a believer in Jesus. 
And so Paul says, as you have been forgiven, so also forgive. Are you really going to stand there and argue that your long-cherished grudge against that brother, that sister, is entirely justified? You who have been forgiven, who deserve only judgment and death and hell forever, would have been made children of God and heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. Now understand, if you have been counted righteous in Christ, you must be quick and eager to forgive. If God has washed you clean by sheer extravagant grace, you need to learn to bend that grace towards others and bear with one another with great gospel patience. And notice again those words, just as the Lord has forgiven you. Christ is the model of forgiveness. He's forgiven us totally. Christ has forgiven us completely. Christ has forgiven us with no strings attached. Christ's forgiveness is genuine. And Christ's forgiveness had nothing to do with whether we deserved it or not. And that's the essence of true forgiveness for anybody. Christ's forgiveness is freely given. And so should ours. So those are the qualities that mark the new man. They're simple, but they're beautiful qualities. And if you want to see a model of these, just study Jesus, and you'll see his compassion. You'll see his humility and his gentleness, his kindness. You'll see his long patience, his forbearance. And you'll certainly see his beautiful, unending, and eternal forgiveness. So you see, the practice of the new man is to put on, really, the likeness of Christ. He is a model for us. But notice, finally and briefly, the perfection of the new man. Look at verse 14. Above all, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Once you've got these garments on, he wants you to throw one last robe over the whole thing. And it's love. It's the culminating grace. Love really encapsulates all of these other graces. It's the sum of every other Christian grace and virtue. Love is shorthand for everything else, we might say, about how Christians are to live. Love for God and love for neighbor. You'll never experience compassion for people unless you love them. You'll never experience kindness toward people unless you love them. You'll never know the meaning of humility and gentleness unless you love them. You'll never know what it is to be willing to suffer long and to endure and to forgive unless you love them. The grace that completes every other grace is love. Paul said in Romans 13, Do not owe anyone anything except to love one another. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. The commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covet. And any other commandment are summed up by this commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Love, therefore, is the fulfillment of the law. But love is not only the culminating grace, it's the completing grace. Paul calls it the perfect bond of unity. It's like, it's like lots of individual uh, patches sitting there intending to be quilted, but they're no good. They're not going to keep you warm if you don't have the thread to put them together. Right? Love is that thread. You may be seeking to grow in kindness towards someone. You may be trying to be more patient with that person you really struggle to love. But without love, the gong will bang and the cymbal will crash and those attempts will be empty. Maybe that person won't recognize it, but it will be hollow. It takes love to make these graces grow. And it's a love that comes through Christ, by the Spirit at work in you. That's why we pray and sing, May the love of Jesus fill me as the waters fill the sea. 
Him exalting, self-abasing, this is victory. We love because he first loved us. So let me ask you this. Do you want to be like this? As you look at this glorious vision of what it means to be the new creation, do you want to be like it? Do you recognize, well, I'm not this yet, but I want to grow in these graces. Is your heart drawn to it? Can you say, I want to put on Christ. I want his virtue to be my virtue, his life to be my life. And since God elected me, and since he made me holy, and since I am his beloved, it seems a reasonable service to be what he wants me to be and to put on the clothes of the new man and so live to glorify his name. Let that be the prayer of your heart today and every day until the last day. Christ is your new life, so put on your new clothes and follow him. And maybe you're here this morning and you've never come to know Jesus Christ, the Savior. You can't be like him because you don't even know him. But maybe you're saying in your heart, I want to know Christ. I want to follow him. And my sin forgiven. And I want this new life. Well, friends, you can have that new life in Christ right now by simply leaving your old life behind and turning to Christ in faith and saying, Lord Jesus, thank you for dying and rising from the dead for my sins. Thank you for coming into this world, God in human flesh, to pay my sin debt. Thank you for the promise that you'll make me a new creature. And I want you to do that for me right now. Trust in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and he will save you now. That's his promise. Call upon the name of the Lord, and you will be saved. Let's pray together. Lord, help us, please, to hold together always the commands of your word the exhortations to obedience and the promises of grace, the declarations of mercy, the reminders of your favor in Jesus Christ, so that we never allow ourselves to think that your will for us is merely aspirational but always out of reach, but instead drive us back again and again to the wonder of your love that began in eternity and flows forward through the cross in the center of history to take hold of us, and captivate our hearts, and make us your own. Oh, Lord God, keep us always fixed on your redeeming love, and then grasping the wonder of it more and more, enable us by your grace, the same grace, to live for your glory and newness of life. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.